Monday was tax day. No cause for celebration for millions of ordinary people, but for the ultra-rich, it wasn't so bad. Many of the wealthiest people on the planet actually pay a tax rate that is lower than a typical worker. How do they get away with this scam? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarek, filling in for Brian Beck. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. Professor Wolff, tax day, as I said, was Monday, not something that a lot of people look forward to, but you shared a graphic recently on social media that, that we found very illuminating. It lists some of the wealthiest people on the planet, including Bill Gates, Michael Bloomberg, Larry Ellison, who's the co-founder of Oracle. And it shows their average annual income over a number of years. The range was 2013 to 2018. And the average effective tax rate that they pay, what percent of that income do they pay in taxes? For Bill Gates, his real tax rate was 18.4%. For Larry Ellison, another super ultra billionaire, he only paid 21.8%. Larry Page, co-founder of Google, 13.2%. And maybe the most shocking of all of them was Michael Bloomberg, of course, a notorious billionaire, paid just 4.1% in taxes. How is this possible? Well, let me preface my answer by saying that the tax structure of the United States stands, as I'm about to explain, as the starkest, clearest evidence and proof that anyone could ask for of the utter disconnection of both major parties, Republican and Democrat, from anything like a commitment to what the interests are of the vast majority of people. Allowing a tax structure to be developed the way we have it allowing it to persist over decades the way we have it, is a sign that those political parties are owned by the people they favor in the way I'm about to describe. So let me begin with Michael Bloomberg. You point out 4.1% or whatever it was of the billions, and that's what it was, billions he earned in that five-year period, 2013 to 2018, covered by the statistics that were released. Michael Bloomberg was already a multi-billionaire. That is, he already owned 
many billions of dollars. I believe it's 30 or 40 billion last time I looked. So we're talking not about that wealth that he had, but about the additional income that that wealth brought him in those five years. And our tax structure only took 4% at the federal level, 4% of that money that he got over and above the billions he already owned. I mean, what it does is make sure that the billionaires become even more wealthy while all the rest of us pay much, much higher percentages of our income in the taxes that we're required to pay. That's the first thing. How is this possible? Well, I'm not going to talk about illegal ways of reducing your taxes because I don't have the proof and I'm not going to make claims about things I can't be confident I could back up with evidence. What I can tell you, though, is that there are plenty of legal mechanisms available to Bill Gates and Michael Bloomberg and all the rest to get out of paying anything like the tax rates the rest of us pay. There are special exemptions, special deductions, ways of earning income that don't carry a tax with them. Just to give you a couple of examples, if you lend money to cities or states in the United States, you don't have to pay income tax on the interest that those cities and states pay to the people rich enough to lend them money, which people like Gates and Bloomberg are. And there are many, many, many other examples. And I'll go into a couple of them in a moment. But the basic point is this. If you're a billionaire, you can and do contribute huge amounts of money to politicians. Michael Bloomberg gives tens of millions of dollars over the years on many occasions to political projects, to parties, to candidates, etc., etc., If you are a person who gives that kind of money, you get the attention of those politicians. Their careers depend on getting that money out of you. Their careers depend on your not being a rich person angry with them, because then you might give your money to whoever is running against them. You put all that together, and the politicians are eager to please these billionaires. And the way they show that eagerness is by writing the laws in such a way that allow the billionaires to escape taxation. So it's very simple. You write the law that gives the billionaire an extra billion, and he takes a small share of it, 10 million and gives it to you or to you and your fellow congresspersons or senators. And the game is very comfortable for the billionaire on the one hand and the successful, in quotes, politician on the other. That's how the system works. And let me illustrate with just a couple of the really gross examples. The one I like the most and the one I stress the most about our tax system is the one that has to do with taxing property. That's not an income tax. It's a tax on property. In other words, if you own property, the government levies a tax on the value of the property. In our country, the U.S., the federal government doesn't do that, and state governments don't do it. The only level of government that basically taxes 
property is local government, cities, sometimes counties across the United States. Here's how it works. In every city, there's an office called the tax assessor. The job of the tax assessor is to value the properties in that town that are subject to tax. And that usually means the land. It usually means the houses and homes built on the land. It sometimes means the stores and commercial enterprises on the land. And it sometimes includes automobiles, fleets of trucks, things like that. If you own a house or a piece of land or an automobile in many, many cities and towns across America, you get an annual tax bill. It's a property tax, and it's a certain percentage of whatever the tax assessor says is the value of that car you're driving or that home you are occupying. And cities and towns across America get a very large, substantial portion of their revenue that they spend, for example, on the local school system, on the local fire department, on the local police department, and so on. That money comes from a tax on property, cars, land, homes. But now here comes the joyous news for the billionaire. There is one kind of property that is not taxed ever. It's property in the form of stocks and bonds. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Here's how this works. If you own a $100,000 home in, say, uh, pick a town, New Haven, Connecticut, you pay a property tax to the city of New Haven every year. If you sell your $100,000 home and you use the $100,000 you get from doing that and use it to buy shares of stock, so you now own $100,000 worth of stocks, but not a $100,000 home, the city of New Haven doesn't tax you one nickel. Stocks and bonds are exempted from the property tax. The way this is spoken of in economics is like this. Tangible property, that is property literally you can touch, like a piece of land or a building or an automobile, is subject to the property tax. Intangible property, something in the form of a piece of paper that stands for the property you own, like a stock certificate or a bond that you have in your safe deposit box or that you have your broker keep for you, that kind of wealth is not taxed. And now here comes the little economics lesson. The overwhelmingly dominant form in which rich people hold their wealth is, you guessed it, stocks and bonds. Sure, they have a lovely house or two or three and a lovely automobile or two or three, but that's not where the bulk of their wealth is held. The bulk of their wealth is held in stocks and bonds and all of that kind of intangible wealth, and they pay no property tax on it. The federal government doesn't tax property. It taxes the income you earn which may come from the property, but it doesn't tax the property itself. 
Let me give you an example of the gross unfairness here. If you're a family that lives in a home and you're able to rent out an apartment within your home or a couple of rooms within your home, your town will make you pay a property tax on the value of your home and the federal government will tax the income, the rental income you get from your tenants. You will be taxed twice once on the income your property generates, and then again on the property. But if you own a share of stock, you are taxed on the income you may get from it, but you're never taxed on the value of the property itself. So if Mr. Bloomberg has, let's say, $20 billion in stocks and bonds, which is quite likely at least as much as he has, there is no tax on that property. Wow. The richest people get away with no property tax, even though you and I have to pay a property tax on our car and on our home. And we don't have to pay property tax on our stock and bond portfolio because there's nothing or next to nothing in it. This is a grotesque injustice serving the rich. There's no reason for it. In other countries, property is taxed. At other points in American history, we did tax intangible property. I remember learning that the first tax on property ever passed in the state of Connecticut, by the way, was a tax on shares in a canal that had been structured. In other words, taxing intangibles has a history, but we just don't do it anymore because the rich people took care of that. Here's a second gross example. The share of federal revenue coming in from taxing corporations has shrunk to next to nothing over the last century. The rest of us have to pay more because corporations are paying less. And here's a final gross example. Once upon a time, the income tax, the federal income tax, brought in the bulk of the money Washington used to do all the things we ask the federal government to do. But then the rich people persuaded the Congress and the president with their fat donations to change that and to shift so that the federal government gets more and more of its money over the decades, not from the income tax, which is progressive. What that means is the higher your income, the bigger the share of it, you are to pay an income tax. That's to call the principle of taxing people according to their capacity to pay the tax. But less and less of the government's money was brought in by the income tax, and more and more of it was brought in by the Social Security tax, F-I-C-A, on your check. And the F-I-C-A tax is flat, same percentage for everybody, up to the first $130,000 a year you earn. But if you earn more than $130,000, roughly, the tax doesn't apply, which means not only is it not progressive, it's the opposite. It's regressive. The people who earn millions a year only pay the Social Security tax on the first $130,000. On all the rest, there is no Social Security tax. 
Now, who invented that? Let me give you the conclusion. If we just taxed intangible property in America, or and or if we just applied the Social Security tax to everybody, not just the first $130,000 earned, then we would have more than enough money in the Social Security system to guarantee everyone a Social Security pension better than the one they have now for a century. So there is no crisis of Social Security because the truth is it's the tax system that hobbles the Social Security system and threatens them and is a grotesque piece of evidence about the fundamental injustice of the American economic system as it is continued and reinforced by the two political parties. Thank you, Professor Wolf. Very important points there. I'm looking at a couple articles on on this subject. This is from CNBC. America's richest 400 families pay a lower tax rate than the average taxpayer. Richest 400 families, 8.2% average federal tax rate, true tax rate. And here's another piece from about a year ago. It's based on a ProPublica analysis that found that the richest 25 people in the United States have a true tax rate of almost nothing, almost nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's astounding. And I'm glad you're going back in history because people like me, and I'm far from the only one, have been talking about this for decades. When I was a student at the university learning the economics that I've been a professor of all my adult life, the teacher came to that point, stopped for a few minutes and said to us, what I'm about to teach you was in a course called public finance. I'm going to teach you how the tax system works, but I want you to get ready because you're not going to believe how this really works. And then our professor said to us, a room full of 2025 graduate students in economics, he took us through for about 40 minutes of uninterrupted lecture, and we sat there spellbound, not so much by the details, they were interesting, but by the picture that was being painted of a system that, there's no nice way to say it, a system that creates unspeakable wealth by screwing over the mass of middle income and poor people, hitting them with one tax after another. I remember one student getting up and saying, no wonder everybody in my family hates taxes and wants taxes reduced. They don't understand that the problem isn't that taxes are too high. The problem is who pays and who doesn't. The reason the mass of people are overloaded with taxes is because the richest amongst us don't pay anything like what they ought to, and the burden has been shifted on to the rest of the people. And the cleverness of the conservatives have been to hide that reality behind a general argument, we should lower taxes. No, we shouldn't. We shouldn't lower taxes. We should reduce them on those who've been paying too much and place them on those who have been paying too little, who turn out to be the richest amongst us, and therefore those most able to pay the taxes that the rest of us can't. The only basic fairness and honesty would have us do that. And there again, my point, that no major Republican and no major Democrat 
with the exception nowadays of Bernie Sanders and AOC and people like that, with the exception of them, and I appreciate that they're the exception, everybody else, the establishments of the two parties, Mr. Trump and all of that, they don't say boo about all of this, and they keep reinforcing it by passing one budget and one tax system like this year in and year out. Yeah, Professor Wolf, I, I want to stay with this topic of the politics of taxing and tax cuts. You know, Donald Trump, in his first year in office, one of the first initiatives that he took up was a major tax cut for the rich and a major tax cut for corporations. By some estimates, the Trump tax cuts netted the wealthy up to $2 trillion over the course of 10 years. $2 trillion. I mean, that's bigger than most countries' entire economy. So a huge, unbelievable giveaway. It was titled the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And I I think that title really encapsulates the presentation, right? So, okay, we're going to cut taxes. And you, you know, working class people, you should be happy about this too, because even though you're not really going to get the tax cuts, you'll get jobs because the rich and the corporations that they own, they're the job creators. And if we cut taxes, then sooner or later, that will trickle down to you in the form of more jobs or better jobs or higher wages or whatever. Just debunk that argument, if you will. Sure. First, nobody, no politician, even the most conservative, could dare stand up and defend this tax system that I've just partially summarized for you. It is so gross, it is so unfair that no conservative would dare endorse it. So what do they do? They have to come up with a justification for keeping such an unfair tax system in place by claiming it will do marvelous other things. So you never talk about the taxes. You just talk about We're cutting taxes, you see, and that's going to bring more jobs. And you hope people are so eager to have more jobs that they won't look at what it is you're actually saying. Democrats in general do that, and Republicans in general do it even more. So we get these stories. Well, let's take a look at how this works out. In the case of the super rich, let's include, I'll pick one, I could pick any of them, but I'll pick one, Jeffrey Bezos. I believe he ranks number two after Elon Musk in people who are billionaires and who are paying very low rates of tax on their wealth and on their income. Well, did he create jobs? Well, here's the two things to keep in mind. There's no evidence, none, that he created more jobs after the tax cut than he did before. His decisions about whether or not to open another Amazon warehouse here or there are made based on profit calculations and cost calculations in which the amount of tax he does or doesn't have to pay is a footnote, which any honest business leader will tell you. They're sure happy to pay less in taxes because that's like a gift, and they accept it, but it's not the determinant of whether or not they open a factory or expand their business. Number two, let's take a look at the businesses, the jobs that Mr. Bezos created. They are some of the worst paid, hardest jobs 
in the country. You know how we know that? Because Mr. Bezos is now being challenged for the first time by unionization efforts. Two weeks ago, there was a very successful one on Staten Island in New York, where the first Amazon warehouse was successfully unionized. There have been efforts before, but this one succeeded and won by a sizable margin. And there's another warehouse up for vote, I believe, later this week. So we're learning that the quote-unquote jobs created are the kinds of jobs virtually no one wants. People who work there are bitter and angry, want a union to protect them from the horrific conditions and the crappy pay that these jobs mostly involve. Human beings don't want any job. They want a job that pays well. They want a job that doesn't hurt their health, that allows them some reasonable time to go to the bathroom, have a lunch, etc. Don't tell folks you're going to create a job and then neglect to mention that the job is awful. Over the last six months, more Americans, and I'm talking about tens of millions, have quit their job, walked away than we've ever seen in a six-month period in this country. Why? Because the jobs are unbearable. So what we are doing is we're giving people tax breaks at the top, the richest, the biggest corporations. We have no idea whether they would have created the jobs they created in any case with or without the tax cut. They just say that so they don't have to admit they want more of a tax benefit than they're already getting. And then finally, we don't look this gift horse in the mouth to discover that the jobs they are creating are insecure jobs with minimal benefits that subject people to unspeakable pressure and that don't pay them enough. I mean, what are we talking about using a tax system to subsidize people who turn their back on what this country might be in order to do what? To add yet more billions to the billions they already have. It isn't anymore a question of criticism. It's a question of calling something obscene because it is. We're going to have to leave it right there. That was Professor Richard Wolf. He is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books. The latest is The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We bring you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.